Today at Reader's Corner, Yasha Monk, author of the new book, The Identity Trap, a story of ideas and power in our time. I'm Bob Custard. Welcome to Reader's Corner. For much of history, societies have ostracized and oppressed ethnic, religious, and sexual minorities. It's no surprise that many who believe in social justice came to believe that members of marginalized groups need to take pride in their identity to resist injustice. But over the past decades, a healthy appreciation for the culture and heritage of minority groups has transformed into a counterproductive obsession with group identity in all its forms. This, Yasha Monk argues, is the identity trap. In his latest book of the same name, Monk makes the case for why the application of these ideas from education to public policy is proving to be so deeply counterproductive and why more universal and humanist values can better serve the vital goal of true equality. Yausha Monk is a writer and academic known for his work on the rise of populism and the crisis of liberal democracy. He is a contributing editor at The Atlantic, host of the podcast The Good Fight, which I highly recommend, and the author of The Great Experiment, among other books. He received his Ph.D. in government from Harvard University and is a professor of the practice of international relations at Johns Hopkins University. Yausha Monk, welcome to Reader's Corner. Thank you so much. I'd like to get our listeners' attention right off the bat, Yasha, uh, by talking about the examples you use in the book, uh, kind of in the middle of your book, actually, uh, a corporate behavior at Coca-Cola uh, that I really think gets to what you're writing about. And then also the example of the teacher who assigned students to certain groups. I'll let you fill in the details, but I thought in so many ways that really addresses here uh, what manifests itself in the real world as a result of uh, of what some people call wokeness. Yeah, you know, one of the times I was most moved in, in doing research for this book is when I talked to a lady called Kyla Posey who lives in the suburbs of uh, Atlanta. She's an African-American educator. She has two uh, young children who go to elementary school. And she asked her, uh, her daughter's school whether she could uh, choose a classroom, a teacher for, for one of her daughters. And the school said, sure, of course, just send along her name, uh, which she did. And then the principal kept demurring. You know, she kept saying, well, perhaps that's not the right teacher. Perhaps that's not the right classroom. How about this other classroom? And eventually Kyla uh, grew a little impatient and said, look, what's going on here? You said I could choose a teacher for my daughter. Why are you suddenly telling me I can't? And the principal responded to her, well, you know, that's not the black class. Um, now, this sounds like a story of straight-up racial discrimination in the American South, of which American history has known many episodes. Um, but uh, it's a little bit more complicated because the principal is herself a black woman and she actually has bought into a set of new progressive ideas in education according to which kids need to lean into their racial identity, need to think of themselves as racial beings. And one of the ways to accomplish that is to make sure that they're around as many uh, members of their own ethnic groups as possible. More broadly, there are now uh, attempts in many schools to run these racially uh, segregated affinity groups, sometimes as early as a third of a second of a first grade, where teachers come into the classroom for at least some time each week and say the black kids are going to go over in that corner and the Latino kids are going to go in that corner and the Asian American kids are going to go in the third corner and the white kids are going to go into the, the fourth corner of the fourth classroom. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, I think that 
this is very concerning because um, it is trying to uh, get people to fight for the interests of a group against oppression, perhaps it's trying to teach white kids to disown their white privilege. But what it'll do is to inspire a, a zero-sum conflict between different groups in which it becomes harder rather than easier for them to cooperate. Um, very briefly, I've been talking about education, but you are alluding to Coca-Cola. Uh, this is now happening in the corporate world as well. Coca-Cola uh, ran a training uh, for its employees, which was also shared by many other companies, uh, in which Robin D'Angelo, one of the most best-selling authors from the summer of 2020, a white diversity consultant, um, had a slide called, uh, you know, ways to be less white. Uh, it was asking uh, employees of Coca-Cola to be less white. Um, really absurd ideas about what it is to be white and what by implication it is to be non-white. You know, be less perfectionist, be less demanding, be less whatever, and that's how you're somehow going to be less white. Um, that is not uh, the kind of diversity training which makes sense, which is how to get along, how to recognize each other's common humanity, uh, how to treat each other respectfully. Um, uh, it is it is deeply divisive in a way that that's not going to lead us to a better country. And I must say, uh, out here in Idaho, Yasha, we've certainly seen the results of that. Uh, we've seen uh, very conservative legislators, for example, strike out uh, against uh, the efforts of liberals, they would say, uh, to cast whites in some derogatory uh, fashion. And I thought that, that corporate example really hit it right on the head because it creates such a backlash but before we get too far into the conversation, why don't we discuss these terms, uh, wokeness? Uh, and in your case, you've come up with a way to get away from the controversy surrounding wokeness and try to come up with a term that um, is, uh, maybe we could call it more neutral, but the identity synthesis, which is really an intellectual argument that makes a lot more sense than what uh, the media and others now refer to loosely as wokeness. Yeah, let me just, let's just say, say, say one very brief thing about your last point, which is that um, you know it's not just that it says derogatory things about white people. It often ends up implying derogatory things about non-white people. So one document that's made around, it's been used by the Chicago public school system, by the Smithsonian Museum, by many other institutions, is this hallmarks of white supremacy culture. And it says, you know, perfectionism, uh, worship of a written written word, punctuality, these are hallmarks of white supremacy culture, which implies that uh, African-Americans or Latinos or Asian-Americans somehow don't like the written word or that they're not perfectionist. Um, so, so, so it's actually derogatory uh, under the you know banner of anti-racism. It's derogatory about non-white people. Um, it's not a form of reverse racism. It's just a form of Straight up racism, um, but but yes, to your to to your broader question, look, what I describe in in my new book and the identity trap is a is the rise of a new set of ideas about race and gender and sexual orientation uh, that go beyond uh, forms of identity politics that I can recognize as helpful. Um, you know, in American history, we've often had movements to fight for equal rights for groups that have been excluded from those forms of fair treatment in extreme ways. Um, you know, African-American fights for emancipation and against Jim Crow, for example, the fights of sexual minorities for same-sex marriage um, and equal treatment in society. What is interesting about this new ideology, and I think wrong-headed about this new ideology, 
is that it's not calling for inclusion under those universal values. It is uh, calling in many cases for their abolition. It is saying that how we treat each other and how the state treats all of us should come to depend in very many circumstances on the kind of groups into which we are born. And that I think is wrong-headed. Now, the word that everybody knows of this ideology is woke, um, uh, you know, which used to be a self-description of activists. It used to be a positive term. Now the problem is that if you go on about woke this and woke that, you sound a little bit like an old man shouting at the clouds. Um, and what we need is a term that allows us to understand and analyze these ideas dispassionately, to actually make sense of them and then to evaluate them. No, socialism is an idea that some of your listeners might like, a lot of them might dislike it, but all of them can agree to call it socialism, right? People can, whether they like or dislike the ideology, they have a term by which to call it. We need mm -hmm. something similar for this ideology. And so the word that I suggest for it is the identity synthesis, because it's a set of ideas that's really centered on the role that identity categories do and should play in our society, and as I argue in my book, they are a synthesis of different intellectual influences ranging from postmodernism to postcolonialism to critical race theory. And as it turns out, uh, some of those philosophers uh, that you cite in the book and and spend uh, at least a couple of chapters on, uh, later on in their careers, uh, they backtracked, didn't they? Yeah, this is a really interesting uh, uh, point about the origin of these ideas. Um, you know, let me give you one example. I, I, I discuss, uh, you know, a good number of thinkers and really try and explain uh, where these ideas come from and how they explain the, the, the nature of contemporary social justice movement politics. Um, but one really interesting figure here was Gayatri Spivak. Um, she is uh, an Indian literary scholar who was very influenced by postmodernism and post-structuralism. She was very influenced by uh, the skepticism of those traditions about uh, objective truth um, and even about sort of the basic conceptual categories we use to make sense of a world. She basically agreed with them that many of the identity labels we use to make sense of a world are overly constraining, try to emphasize the similarity between people who also share many dissimilarities. Um, in philosophical terms, uh, she rejected essentialism, the idea that these identity groups have some essential uh, things in common. And yet she disagreed with some of those same philosophers who said, perhaps it's time for uh, you know lefty intellectuals to stop speaking for other people. Perhaps it's time for uh, us to stop pretending that we're speaking for a proletariat, for example. You know, they can speak for themselves. And Spivak said, look, perhaps that's true of some uh, workers in Paris who have voting rights, who have an education, who know they're going to have food on the table at night. It's not true for the kinds of people that she was most concerned with in places like Kolkata, who uh, may have been illiterate, who may not have been able to go to school, um, who uh, didn't have food on the table. Somebody needed to speak for them. And so she suggested that we need to embrace what she calls strategic essentialism. For strategic political purposes, we should pretend that those essentialist accounts of identity, which we know to be wrong, are actually right. And that turned out to be super influential. Um, if you go to an activist space today, you'll hear something like, race is a social construct, it's not real, the point of the criticism of essentialism. But then in the next breath, the same activist might say, we should listen to brown and black people. You know, we should defer to people of color, to BIPOC people, right? Um, they're going on to make these 
essentialist claims supposedly for strategic purposes. Spivak became worried that this in her uh, formulation was just the union ticket to a more vulgar form of essentialism, that it just became an excuse to engage in the most unreflected way in that kind of zero-sum conflict between different identity groups. In reference to the tea wallers who uh, sell tea in the streets of India, she marked what she called the identity wallers at American universities. You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is Xiaoxia Monk. He is the author of the new book, The Identity Trap. So there's been, a, speaking of race, there's been a significant backlash against critical race theory here in Idaho and other states where legislators have attempted to root it out of the classroom, even though the enemies of critical race theory are often far off the mark in either defining it or finding it. But how does that fit into your argument here? Yeah, so, uh, you know, in, in, in the first part of my book, I, I trace the origin of uh, the ideology I describe. Um, uh, and it's, it's astounding to me that very few people have attempted to do that. And and the ones who have are mostly right-wing polemicists who've claimed it's a form of cultural Marxism, which is simply a substantive mistake and, and a historical mistake. I'm an intellectual historian by training, and I think where these ideas actually come from is different sets of traditions, which include critical race theory, which is an interesting uh, uh, philosophy developed um, by a set of scholars, mostly at American law schools uh, in the 1970s and 1980s and 1990s uh, by figures like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw in particular, as other important luminaries in the field. And I enjoyed reading the work and I learned from it. And um, I, I, I think it's interesting and worthwhile, even if I ultimately uh, have some fundamental disagreements with it. And what's strange about critical race theory is that its opponents and some of its proponents in the media have sort of conspired to really hide what it is actually about. Um, uh, you know, on the right, there are people who say, if you want to teach kids about the history of slavery in the United States, then that's critical race theory. That's terrible, right? And that's absurd. Of course, we should uh, teach uh, children about the history of the United States, including the good sides and including the, the terrible sites like slavery. Um, but but as a result, when you listen sometimes to NPR or when you watch MSNBC or you read the New York Times, it can sound as though critical race theory is just wanting to think critically about the role that race plays in society, wanting to teach kids about things like slavery. And so what could be wrong with that? But if you go back to those figures like Bell and like Crenshaw, you see that it is a specific set of claims, but it's interesting, but very radical. Um, you know, Derek Bell was an African-American civil rights lawyer who helped to desegregate schools in the American South in the 1960s, but he came to think of much of that work as a mistake. He came to agree explicitly with segregationists, Southern senators, who said these civil rights lawyers claim to argue for the interests of their clients, really they just want to impose the ideology of racial integration on society. They should actually listen to what the clients want. Um, and, and Bell said... In many cases, what was in the client's interest was to have better schools, but not to necessarily have integrated schools. But sometimes we should have been open to uh, schools that are separate but truly equal. He criticized again and again uh, Brown versus Born of Education throughout his life. And he saw himself as a deep and fundamental critic of the civil rights movement. He said at one point that we need to get rid of, I quote, the defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. Um, later, Kimberly Crenshaw 
um, emphasized that the ideas of Barack Obama were fundamentally at odds with the core tenets of critical race theory because he was too much of a universalist. He was not uh, uh, sufficiently open to rearranging society in such a way that how you treat it is explicitly dependent on the kind of group of which you are a part. So um, you know, there's been a long-standing debate in African-American intellectual history between people like Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King and I would argue Barack Obama who called out injustices in the day, who wanted to fight for African-Americans to have equal treatment, but who thought that this was a matter of living up to our ideals. And people who said, no, those ideals are so broken, they're so corrupt, that we need to get rid of them, but we need to rip up the Constitution, but we need to completely refound this country. That's the tradition of people like Malcolm X. And it is, I believe, the tradition of uh, uh, people who are members of uh, critical race theory tradition. And, and what I think you call progressive separatism, is that correct? Yeah, so that I think then, so then the question becomes, well, uh, is critical race theory taught in schools? Um, and people say, of course it's not, because it's a, you know, law school sophisticated theory. We're not having people in second or third grade read, uh, Derek Bell or Kimberly Crenshaw. But there's nothing wrong with reading Derek Bell or Kimberly Crenshaw. I teach those texts in, in, at college, and I think it would be perfectly appropriate to teach them. Uh, to smart students who are 16, 17 years old and teach critiques of them as well and have them actually debate those ideas. But but this is missing the point. Um, what I do think many schools are doing is to be inspired by the ideas of critical race theory and by the notion of strategic essentialism developed by uh, Gayatri Spivak uh, and to um, run the classrooms in accordance with some of those ideas, doing things like the privilege walk exercise, where you line students up and then you um, read out a bunch of attributes. Do you have both of your parents at home? Are you white? Uh, are you disabled? And on each of those, if a child has some form of relative supposed privilege, they're supposed to take a step forward. And if they have a, a form of disadvantage, uh, then they stay put. And then at the end, you look at where students are. Uh, that is a kind of popularized, vulgarized, simplistic application of those ideas. Um, if that is not Derek Bell's fault and it's not Kimberly Crenshaw's fault, but I do think that in a meaningful way, it derives from those ideas. And those kind of practices and social norms, like those segregated affinity groups at many of the most influential and elite private schools throughout the country, really are being implemented in many educational environments. And that I think um, it is reasonable to be concerned about. Mm -hmm. You cite the work of Maurice Mitchell, who wrote an article about the challenge of executives in organizations today who lament how toxic the atmosphere has become. And I think I remember somewhere in your book where you actually call attention to the fact that it's our young people, it's our students who are the recipients of uh, this uh, identity synthesis, this this effort to assign people to groups uh, and uh, to overlook uh, universalistic or humanist uh, values, and and I think I think somewhere in your argument you point out that it's young people who are entering the organization and perhaps bringing their politics with them. Is that right? Yeah, I think that, that there is a good good amount of that. I mean, there's a leader of a progressive uh, organization. But a quote is saying um, something along the lines, I don't have the exact quote in front of my eyes right now, uh, that, you know, we used to want to fight to make the world a better place. 
And now we just make our organizations more miserable places to work. Uh, you know, it is really remarkable how many internal meltdowns there have been in the nonprofit sector and the arts, uh, more broadly, but, but at the most progressive, uh, advocacy organizations in particular. I, I felt that in the case of a friend of mine, um, who was always a little bit skeptical, uh, when I criticized these ideas, who perhaps is, uh, uh, I myself am on, on the liberal left, I would say, but, but this friend is perhaps further left. Um, uh, and who never agreed with me when I criticized these ideas. Uh, but then I didn't see her for a number of years because of a pandemic. And when I saw her for the first time, uh, after that, uh, at a sort of little party, she made a beeline straight for me and said, I finally get what you've been talking about because the organization she worked for, which is a very important organization doing, doing, doing generally impactful work, just tore itself apart over the course of a pandemic because uh, of this kind of internal meltdown. Um, and and I do think that this has to do with the influx of a new set of employees, uh, often from very elite universities, and these problems are often worse at very elite organizations or at organizations that recruit a lot from those elite universities, um, that has just been taught to think in these kind of terms um, since grade school and certainly in middle and high school and and, and certainly in college, um, who are encouraged to perceive any uh, word from a colleague as a microaggression, even if there's evidently no ill intent behind it, who are seen, uh, who are taught to see any political disagreement with some of their position and some of the way to see the world as questioning the right to exist or questioning in an existential way uh, their belonging uh, in the organization. And that just, uh, you know, is a recipe for conflict. It raises the stakes of any social interaction, of any professional interaction in such a way um, that you're nearly guaranteeing these problems. It's really striking to me that New York University on its ID cards has, you know, three numbers for its students to call. Um, one is you know, a medical emergency line. Uh, the second is some kind of public safety line, you know, if, 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 if you see a serious crime in progress or you suspect of terrorist attack. And the third is encouraging people anonymously to report, um, any form of perceived bias, including supposed microaggressions. You know, if that's how you run your institution, you're encouraging people to be in conflict. You're sending the message that you don't expect them to get along. And then you shouldn't be surprised if the institutions that hire predominantly from people uh, race in that culture end up with these huge internal blowups that distract them from their important missions. And, and it has a very uh, serious impact on freedom of speech, doesn't it? Yes. And, and, and that also is something that's been very obvious in the last weeks. Um, uh, you know, if you, uh, uh, start, uh, you know, investigating from the university, uh, students for supposed microaggressions that have been uh, anonymously reported. First of all, you're giving a tool to any student to just take their revenge on a fellow student by sub subjecting them to this kind of procedure. And you're making everybody incredibly nervous about walking anywhere close to the line, about uh, saying anything that might under any circumstances by anybody be considered offensive. That is not the way to sustain uh, a genuine culture of free inquiry and academic freedom, which is supposed to be the purpose of universities. And by the way, one argument that I've made for a very long time is that it's deeply naive for the left to think that giving up on those values of free speech is always going to serve it. 
um, that might be tempting to think in the context of university that leans pretty far left. But if other social institutions take on those norms, um, often it's going to be people on the left who are going to be uh, cancelled for them. And we've seen a little bit of that in the last weeks with students who've made uh, who've said things that I personally find to be deeply wrong and offensive, um, celebrating, for example, Hamas's attack on southern Israel in October uh, 7th. Uh, uh, but uh, now it is suddenly them uh, who are uh, being punished in those kinds of ways. And that was entirely predictable. Once you start uh, disciplining one set of people for one set of views, others are going to say, hang on a second, here's this other thing that I find offensive. If you punished you know, this person for that, you have to punish that person for what they just said. And the principal response to this is not to submit to this um, dynamic of competitive cancellation, it is to actually uphold a genuine culture of free speech for everybody. And that has to entail being able to tolerate that sometimes your classmates or your professors uh, will say things that you find to be uh, offensive. Today I'm speaking with Yasha Monk, author of the new book, The Identity Trap. The book provides a comprehensive account of the origins, consequences, and limitations of so-called wokeness. Well, you address the issue of cultural appropriation in your in your book, and uh, I'd like to have you comment on that. But before you do, I I want to remind our listeners uh, that a few years ago, an author by the name of Janine Cummins uh, wrote a book called American Dirt. And uh, as I understand that, I have not read it, but I have it right here in front of me. Uh, it's it's a book that basically describes the efforts of one mother and her child or children to move north uh, in the uh, line of folks trying to reach the United States from the south. Um, Janine Cummins is is not a Latina, but if you look at the jacket of the novel, there are three Latina women who have endorsed the book, but that didn't stop the criticism from coming. And when I read your section on cultural appropriation, I couldn't help but think that this is a great example of what you're talking about here. Would you mind expanding on that? Yeah, and I should premise that with with saying that I too haven't read the book, so I don't want to comment too specifically on it. Um, But in general, there's come to be this uh, pole of suspicion for any form of cultural exchange in which in particular a member of a supposedly dominant group might be influenced by a member of a supposedly marginalized group. Um, Now, I think that there is an intuitive insight here that is understandable, that sometimes because of forms of outer discrimination in the past, uh, for example, white musicians have been able to take, uh, uh, sometimes steal outright the particular songs of black musicians, have huge careers with them from which those original inventors of the music were excluded. Um, and so I understand how this label of cultural appropriation sometimes picks things out that we might really be concerned about. My own contention in the book is threefold. Number one, that the label of cultural appropriation doesn't actually get to the heart of what makes those cases wrong. What was wrong with those white musicians stealing black music is not that there was, you know, a white jazz saxophonist somewhere. It's that those black musicians were discriminated against in extreme ways, that they often weren't allowed to perform in certain concert venues or to stay in the hotel of a concert venues they performed in, not able to travel freely across the American South, that they 
wouldn't be played in certain radio stations or signed by certain record labels. Um, secondly, this is important because the solution in many of those cases is not to stop the cultural appropriation. It is to fight against the underlying injustice. Um, the thing to do in the 50s and 60s in the United States was not to stop white musicians from performing music that was influenced by black musical traditions. It was to fight against Jim Crow and make sure that black musicians could come to have uh, the same kinds of careers. And then third, um, this question has high stakes. It's actually about something important because virtually everything that is of value in our culture is a product of past cultural appropriation. The language we speak, the technology we use, the clothes we wear, all of those things are themselves a product of different forms of culture influencing each other, um, of people taking inspiration from other cultural groups. And so if we put under the general pole of suspicion uh, how our society, our wonderfully diverse society is able to be in communication with each other, we're actually destroying not what we should be worried about in the United States today, but what is great about the United States today. And so to briefly re re return to the example of your novel, um, I think the criterion is very simple. If this uh, author was not able to depict this journey very well because she didn't experience it or because she shares, she lacks certain cultural context, if this was a bad book, then critics should point that out and yes. say, don't read this book, it's a bad book. But if through a feat of imagination or through research uh, or through other things, she was able to write a moving book that actually illustrates this plight um, uh, and 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 felt accurate to the experience, then the fact that she happened to be from a different group doesn't matter. And, and we have to avoid a simplistic essentialism where you say, you know, if I have some uh, ancestors who are from Latin America, but I grew up as an upper middle class person in the suburbs of Boston, I somehow miraculously can understand exactly what it feels like to be, you know, a poor indigenous person, perhaps even from a different racial group from Latin America, making this kind of trail, whereas this white person over there can't possibly understand that. That is, I think, splitting humans into these broad categories of whites, people of color, Latinos, um, in, in, in ways that, that are actually unhelpful. Um, the question is, can a particular person describe a particular experience based on uh, their knowledge of the world and their research or not? And if they succeeded that, congratulations, you've created a beautiful piece of art. If they haven't, then we have book critics for a reason and there's nothing wrong with a negative book review that tells us all the things that are wrong uh, with that particular piece of literature. In your conclusion, you support more universal and humanist values as a way of uh, fighting back, I guess you could say, uh, the identity trap. I wonder if you could share with our listeners uh, how anyone can fight against the so-called identity trap. Yes, the identity trap really uh, sees itself in opposition to what I think is the proudest political tradition in the United States, the tradition of people who fought against injustices by demanding to be treated equally with other citizens, by demanding to have full and equal rights. Um, some of the core precepts of the identity synthesis is to say that um, the way to understand the world is always 
through the prism of race, gender, and sexual orientation. That is the primary way to understand the world. It is to claim that we haven't really made any political or historical progress. That, as Derek Bell claimed, America in the year 2000 was as racist as it was in 1950 or 1850. And then thirdly, it is to say that therefore we need to give up on our constitutional tradition, give up on those universal values, and make how people are treated more explicitly depend on the group of which they are part all of the time, whether in social situations or whether in political contexts. And I think all of that is wrong. There's a way of recognizing the genuine injustices that persist in our society today without falling into the identity trap. It is to say that, of course, race, gender, and sexual orientation matter for understanding the world, but so do other things, from social class to religion to patriotism to individual attributes and aspirations. That, yes, injustices persist, but we have been able to make a more just society. Our society is less racist, it is less homophobic, it is better than it was in the past. And it's precisely because of people like Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King and others who have insisted on living up to our ideals that we've been able to make that progress. And so that is what we need to do if we want to keep making further progress towards a better society, one in which how you're treated and who you are is going to come to be less dependent, not more dependent on the kind of group into which you are born. Well, that's a fitting conclusion to our conversation, Yasha. And I do want to say in this particular case regarding your book, it's very difficult for me uh, to touch on every aspect of this book. It's such an important work that I think it deserves to be read from the first word to the very last word of the book, which is called The Identity Trap, A Story of Ideas and Power in Our Time. Its author is Yasha Mank. He has taken uh, some of his time today to discuss this with us. Yasha, thank you so much for being with us at Reader's Corner, and thank you for writing The Identity Trap. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones, with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.